Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. I'm your also host, Dax. Each episode, we talk about something related to video game history, perhaps a console release or a noteworthy game or a piece of video game culture that has um, you know, stuck around uh, and, and is of note. Awesome concept uh, vaguely related to video games. We yeah. really don't care what we talk about. Uh, the format is one of us comes ready to go with a story and the other one just shows up and hangs out. Yeah. Today I hang out and Tyler tells a story. But before we do that, we're going to talk about a few other things. And that's what you've been up to. Well, you know, I'm usually uh, I'm usually cranking through with my dissertation. And wow. I have been. I know. It's, <laughs> ooh, so riveting. Oh, look at it. Graphs and figures and talking mm-hmm. about bills in Congress. But fun things I have been doing. Uh, I, as well as you, not to speak for you, got really sucked into Valheim. Yeah, Valheim um, is a good game. For being 50% done in early access, man, fucking awesome. Yeah, uh, we're all Vikings now, and I think I'm going to stick to being a Viking for a while. I hope they update it at some point, and that don't let it just die, but it's already good. Well, as of like today, uh, today being the day that we record the podcast, uh, I think they just hit 5 million copies sold in like, what, three weeks of being out for an early access crafting survival game that's crazy but i mean you know it's twenty dollars the barrier of entry is low we have a private server with our friends it's just a fucking blast it's some of the most fun i've had with gaming in a while oh absolutely if one would like to contact us how would one get in touch with ourselves well first things first we have an email that you can send us suggestions to uh or if you just want to send us feedback someone did actually send us an email recently uh, thank you, Enamel. Shout out to you. That made me laugh. It is codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. Subsequently, we also now have a Twitter that is the same. Codex Rex Podcast is our handle. And um, we post things, like we post when new episodes come out. And a couple times a week, we also post things related to episodes that we've done before or just fun little tidbits that are that are interesting. So... If you want to find me, I'm on Twitch three days a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays, usually around 6 or 7 p.m. Pacific time, usually playing whatever trash I'm feeling this week, which has been Ape Escape 2 and Hades. Glad you got me playing that again, Docs. It's way fun. Yeah, how often did you beat it now? Well, uh, I just beat Hades for the first time very recently, and then I jumped back in and got my ass handed to me with trying out the gauntlets. Hades is, in my opinion, easily the best game of 2020. You know, not to detour us too far, but I just really cannot believe how much dialogue they wrote for that game. Super giant games. These guys, they are insane. I love them. It's like, oh, I ran into a mini boss who I hadn't seen since I beat the last boss with a weapon I hadn't used against him yet. And his dialogue was different with all those permutations. And they're all fully voice acted and recorded and shit. It just, it blew me away. It was really great. It's It's so cool. Intricate piece of art. So, do you want to start? Yeah, let's do this shit. Nice. What do we what do we have today so 
This is actually going to be, Docs knows a little bit about this, but this is going to be the first in a series that I am doing. And I'm kicking off a series of episodes uh, about something that I've wanted to do for a while. So I'm going to be covering an interesting period of gaming history over a series of like maybe five or six episodes. And specifically what I'm going to be talking about is the what they call the fifth generation of consoles. So if the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo, you know, the consoles we've talked about on here before are the fourth generation, I'm talking about what came after. So what came directly after the fourth generation of consoles? And so why I chose this specific era of consoles is because it's a really interesting time for gaming. So companies were trying to outpace each other in this new tech that was like starting to hit the markets. And the industry was trying to figure out how they could render 3D graphics and make them work. So I started writing an episode about a system I've wanted to cover for a while. And I got about halfway through it and I was like, you know what? There's a much bigger picture here. Like there's a much bigger story that I wanted to tell because all these companies affect each other in what they do in, in, in how their products came out. So this is the first in several episodes where I'll be doing like a deep dive into each of these systems because I really think that this, you know, every system in its own way affected gaming, you know, one way or another, whether it was just a blip on the radar or like, you know, some of these systems are still around in one way or another. But a lot of companies that were really no, like had a ton of notoriety failed to make this jump. And so it's, it's really fascinating to me to go back and, and look at that. Nice. Uh, so which year are we to, like when does this Gen 5 start? Is this? So the first console that is released, we'll actually be talking about today, and it hit in 1993. Okay, so this is about early, like, is PS1 part of that generation? The PlayStation 1 is part of that generation, okay. although it came later. Okay, now, just so I have a general idea of which time frame this Gen 5 takes place. Okay. Yep, yeah, I, you know, because I was a PS1 kid, Uh, mm -hmm. I generally think of this as, in my mind, as the PS1 generation, but there were many other consoles of notoriety that came out too. But today we're going to talk about one that, well, maybe didn't hang around as much, not to get too, too ahead of myself. And so <clears throat> our story begins in the mid-80s, but before we can even start our story, we need some backstory, okay? Because the backstory here is really key. The Atari Corporation had been on top of the world for a long time. The release of the Atari 2600 in 1977 ushered in what was con then considered to be the golden age of video games. And while maybe those games are a story for another day, Atari is basically credited for creating the video game console market, in, like in homes. Right. Yeah, Atari was also mostly involved in creating most of the arcade, arcade games that were so prevalent at the time because Atari machines were used to create arcade machines. Right. So, you know, Atari, for a long period of time, was synonymous with gaming. Much like, you know, maybe like Nintendo sort of took over that that moniker later. Yeah. You know, but but just just to, you know, plant this little little flag here in the story you can think of them as you know not single-handedly but really dominating the gaming market for a long time up until what was known as the video game crash of 83 which is i really think something we'll talk about here you know we've sort of danced around it a little bit we'll talk about it in some future episode it almost destroyed the idea of home gaming in the united states at least with consoles essentially just to summarize that 
there was this huge flood of low-grade consoles that were just being pushed out with terrible games, and there was this huge recession in the gaming industry. And so it was not a great time of video games, and it's it's been heavily reported on, you know, so much so that it has a name, the video game crash of 1983. Yeah. Okay, so after this crash, Atari was not in a good spot. And uh, they had been sold to uh, Warner Communications. And while I wouldn't think of Atari as completely down and out, it, there are some who thought that the death of perhaps maybe the greatest American um, gaming console company at the time, uh, re- it really seemed to be at hand. So in 1984, they're in dire straits. Warner decides that they're going to sell off all of their consumer assets of Atari, that is, to a guy named Jack Tramiel. So this is the first time on this podcast that we've talked about this guy, Jack Tramiel, or the family, the Tramiel family. I hope I'm saying their name right. Um, Who knows? (laughs) But I don't expect that it will be the last. And there are a few things that you need to know about Jack that are relevant to him as a person and also to this story. Because he's a bit of a legend in the industry. Of note to us, he had been in charge of Commodore International when they released their highly famous Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody knows why, but he left Commodore after a series of arguments. And that same year, Jack founded a company called Tramel Technology. Like, okay, so his name's like Tramiel, but it was Tramel. Like it was missing the I. I have no idea why they chose this or did this, but fine. Okay, so he makes this company, Tramel Technology. He buys Atari. And so then he takes Trammel Technology and he renames it to Atari Corporation because now he owns the brand. And so the brand name had way more recognition than, you know, his family name. Yeah. Warner sells him the assets for $240 million worth of stocks in the new company. Okay. A little bit about Jack. He was known in the industry for playing insane hardball. And a lot of people did not want to work with him, especially those who had ever worked with him at Commodore. And so the gist I got from a lot of reports was that, you know, he was a guy who was known as somebody who could get results, but he was not well liked for his tactics. And he was so business focused that some thought that like maybe it was a detriment to their products and services. Is, is he like the guy that like you, you have these CEOs in the business room and they discuss like how they're going to get something onto the market and then his name is mentioned. So like, we can't hire him. It's impossible. Remember what happened the last time we did that? No, we have no choice. We have to hire the man. Everybody else will quit, but he will do it. Snake will do the job. His name is not Snake. <laughs> but we call him Snake. I just don't know. Like, my son still hasn't spoken in months since he saw that look on his face in the boardroom meeting. Yeah. You know, we've been taking him to therapy, but I just don't know that our family can handle that again. Okay, so Jack is the, the badass maverick of the gaming industry. That, and maybe also, uh, he was known for making a lot of promises that uh, didn't always pan out, or he would say things that sounded really great that weren't always the whole truth. Oh, so he was also Peter Molyneux. Okay, I get it. Yeah, so he's he's scary Peter Molyneux, if you want to if you want to think about him in that Sc- way. Scary Peter Molyneux. <laughs> <laughs> again i just really want to note that like this is all conjecture but it's relevant to what we'll talk about later (laughs) it will come up i promise you okay so after buying most of atari he starts shutting shit down 
he shuts down branch offices. He starts firing staff, you know, cause Atari's just hemorrhaging money. He sold off most of their inventory, just like trying to recoup losses and see what the company had. And so they use this as an opportunity to finish some of the products that they had in waiting and like some of the, you know, the consoles and the computers that they had been making because, you know, a lot of companies that sold consoles back in the day also sold computers. So they released some stuff. Uh, some of them had been being developed under Warner, including the Atari ST, the Atari 2600 Junior, and the Atari 7800. And so from these releases, the company company rebounded like a little bit. They were still losing in their competition against the Commodore Amiga. Note that Jack Tremiel and Atari were both names that like they had notoriety, but they still had some negative connotations that had been associated with them. You know, but even with this, they were still faring better than Atari had been doing in this like right after the crash, right? So somewhere in the late 80s, given this trajectory, Jack decides that it's time for him to step down. And he lets his son, Sam Tramiel, take over the company. So Sam is who we're going to hear about off and on for a little while. Now, side story time. I don't know exactly when this occurred, but like right around, like as I was reading articles, right around the time that Sam took over, like give or take, I don't know, six months maybe, uh, apparently Atari got investigated by the FBI because they were trying to skirt some kind of import limitations. So if I understand the filing correctly, basically there was like some kind of limitation on how many like chips could be produced in Japan, like how many imported like computer chips could be sent from Japan. Mm -hmm. I don't know context of this. Some kind of protectionist regulation going on in the US. Yeah. Something like that. They were accused of producing chips in Japan, shipping them to Taiwan, having the Atari logos and information scraped off of them, and then shipping them into the US so they could essentially double dip their chips. That's pretty smart. Also, that's how you get investigated by the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so some of their own employees knew that this was occurring and apparently turned them into the FBI, but I don't think that legal action ever came from it, but they were investigated for it. Okay. So 1989, Atari releases a handheld console called the Lynx in an attempt to compete with the Game Boy. Mm -hmm. It was notable, and why this is cool, is that it was notable for the time as being the first handheld console that used a color screen. Oh, cool. So when I was a kid, I had the Game Gear, and I thought that was just the craziest shit that I had ever seen because it was basically like, you know, playing a Genesis or, you know, a Mega Drive, just smaller. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. I could never imagine something like this, partially because I was six years old, but also it was really cool. I can't imagine anything, though this is amazing (laughs) as well. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know it's constantly in stupor because you can't imagine all the things that are happening all the time around him. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, that's that's being a child, I suppose. Everything's yeah. awesome when you're a kid yeah. and you don't know any better. But uh still, the Lynx was really cool. And the Lynx was the first what the first handheld system to do this that used a color screen. And mm-hmm. what was also really notable, I thought this was neat too, they let you, you could pop off the sides. Like I'm sure, you know, you've held your switch before, right? Mm-hmm. And you could pull off the controllers and use them as like things. Mm-hmm. This, you could pull off the sides in a similar way, but you could switch them. So if you wanted, like you were right or left-handed and you preferred oh. the buttons on one side or the other, you could switch the, the pieces. So I thought yeah. that was really cool. How did they figure that out? Because usually people don't think of left-handed people. 
Maybe they had <laughs> right? one left-handed person at the company and the boss came <laughs> by and they switched and he always switched the thing over. And th th that was uh -huh. a feature that they didn't even intend to build. And and then the, the boss came like, why are you holding, holding this like this? I'm left-handed. This is much easier for me. Oh, a left-handed <laughs> feature. Money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can break into the, what was it again? Left-handed left market? Handed yes, money. There's big bucks in left-handed people. We care a lot for these left-handed people. I know. <laughs> I have many friends that are left-handed. <laughs> My daughter was left-handed once, <laughs> but she grew out of it. <laughs> it's just a phase. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and it had a link system where you could connect it to other systems And apparently it it released the first eight-player multiplayer game ever called... Eight players. Eight players. And it was called Todd's Adventures in Slime World. Nice. <laughs> Todd's Adventures in Slime World. As I must say, as a, I'm a PS1 kid as well. And mm -hmm. anything that goes beyond two players blows my mind still. Yeah. So, yeah. I I remember I got a, this is a little side story. I got like a, like a splitter. Like you could get these little oh, controller splitters. Uh, mm -hmm. It was like a rumors going around that these existed <laughs> on, the, on the German streets. There are hot rumors going around that in the United States, they have controller splitters. Yeah. I, I didn't believe it, but they were, yeah. you could play, play with four players on the PS1. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. It was really neat. Actually, I think, and don't quote me on this, but I think if you had two of them, you could play eight players on the same console, but I don't know of any game that had such technology. Wow. But regardless, you could do it on the links. You could play Todd's mm -hmm. Adventures in Slime World. But overall, uh, it had trouble keeping up with the Game Boy, like, yeah. you know, just on the market. Um, the Game Boy was a lot sturdier. Um, there were manufacturing issues that kept the links from getting released before Christmas of that year. The battery life was really bad. It was like two hours. It didn't have nearly as many games as the Game Boy did. It wasn't as durable. Uh, <laughs> this is the part in like, a, you'd be reading a book and you'd see this. And I would say that this is a prologue, like a, uh, what's the word when you know that something's coming? I'm having a brain moment. Uh, You see something in the movie and it tells you something that's going to happen later. Yeah. Uh, foreshadowing. Or... Foreshadowing. This yeah. should be foreshadowing for the rest of our story. <laughs> really okay. cool tech, but just couldn't keep up. But it also, it was a forerunner for something for technology that would be better later on. It's so true. It was the Tamagotchi of what would be better Tamagotchi is not made by Bandai. Yes. Uh, regardless, uh, the Lynx was produced all the way up until 1995 and they kept putting out games for it, even though it wasn't... Um, you know, didn't have as much notoriety as the Game Boy and it didn't catch on. Mm -hmm. So, okay, with all of this in mind, Atari still wasn't doing well. Um, you know, they were making money here and there, but just nothing was really taking off. Their ventures into the home computer market hadn't been great, so they decided, well, if we're not going to sell computers, maybe we should lean hard into our video game ventures. But to do this, they needed to compete with mo uh, modern consoles. Sega and Nintendo were in the midst of their battle um, that we talked about in like the very first episode of the podcast, yeah. and they were competing in multiple global markets for this, you know, share of the home console market. If Atari wanted to be back in the game, they needed to be able to compete with these consoles and they needed a hit. So they had brand recognition and they hoped that this brand recognition could bring them back to this end. 
Atari internally started working on a console called the Panther. The Panther. Like the cat. D- didn't they call the thing before the Lynx? So yes. it was also a cat. Okay. Cat, yep. cat enthusiast. <laughs> There's a theme you'll see soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they planned to release the Panther around the release date of the Super Nintendo. This didn't end up panning out. We'll talk about that later. Internally, the console would use a 16-bit processor, but would use a 32-bit processor for the graphics. Okay? And it was nearly complete. But, well, it's story time. Another side story time, because I love these. So around this time, there was a company called Sinclair Research, a British electronics company that was known for mostly creating home computers. And their most famous stuff that they created uh, were PCs, called the ZX80 and the ZX Spectrum in the Mm -hmm. early 80s. But they ended up running into some financial difficulties, and the company sold a lot of its hardware rights to a different company called Amstrad. hope I said that right. Now, Sinclair still exists today, but from what I understand, it's just a one-man show. Like, it's just run by the founder, like the original founder. Um, His last name's Sinclair, and he basically just keeps it so that he can, like, use it for his inventions that he makes. Okay. Okay. So Sinclair dissolves and three guys from Sinclair, Martin Brennan, Ben cheese and John Matheson had been working for Sinclair up until the rights got sold. And so they're like, well, Hey, why don't we break off and make our own company? So they make their own company called flair. Okay. Like, um, you know, like a flare you'd shoot up into the air or, yeah. you know. Okay. So <clears throat> before Sinclair ran into issues, uh, the company had been working on this computer called Loki. Okay. Like the tricks to go. Yeah. So these guys decide that they want to make a game console that had multiple processors similar to how this Loki thing worked. Though mm-hmm. what's unclear is whether or not they had the original designs and just used them or whether they just remembered them and were influenced by them, or whether this is all just some big coincidence. Who knows? But regardless, what they work on later shares a lot of similarities with this Loki computer. Yeah. Hey guys, I I know we have to make our own design. I randomly have this set of documents in my backpack that will that totally resembles what we are planning to do that is not totally stolen from another company that we recently worked for. Let's not talk about this again, but copy this real quick and then we destroy it, okay? Martin, did you find another set of perfectly immaculate blueprints out in the dumpster again? (laughs) Classic Martin. I don't know how you do this. Cue sitcom music. (laughs) So, okay. So they're working on this thing. And, you know, with their their new startup company, right? And uh, they start working on something called the Conix Multisystem that was pretty technologically impressive at the time. Um, this was, like, for a different company that they were, like, working for. Um, the performance of the console wasn't that great, and they kind of wanted to enhance it, so they're, like, looking for other companies that they can work with. Now, I'll say that... Uh, I'm trying to be kind of careful with definitives in this next part because how everybody met in this like turn of events was really hard for me to piece out. Yeah. Can I, can I have a second to just figure out the storylines that are just going on? Of so course. We have these dudes 
from Atari in the US, right? We have the guys from the Atari in the US. We've the set Atari, them aside. And they are making the Panther. They are working we on the set Panther. set them aside. And they want to release the Panther when the Super Nintendo comes out. That's Correct. storyline cut off at that point. And we have Correct. these guys from Britain that came from Sinclair that made their own company. And now they want to make it. And Sinclair made home computers first, but these guys now want to make also gaming consoles, right? Mm-hmm. And they started Flare. And the th- console that they are now working on is called... The Conix Multisystem. Okay, yeah, just... I, had to I realize there's a lot. Take a step back for a second just to do it. Okay, Conix Multisystem made mm-hmm. by Flare, the guys that copy blueprints of their former boss. Okay. Right. So interestingly, the Conix Multisystem looked like it wasn't going to pan out. <laughs> now that we've got that in the story. And it ends up getting shelved. Um, it actually wasn't going to hit the market. It was really innovated in a lot of ways, but it just didn't pan out. The company ended up selling off a bunch of assets. So while we don't know the context here, I don't know the context at least, around 1989, somewhere, I don't know who contacted who, these guys end up chatting with Atari. And executives at Atari were really impressed with their work on the Connex multi-system. And they're like, hey, you know, we need to con- like we need to contract out some people who will help us finish the Panther. And, you know, we think that you guys, and, you know, I'm really paraphrasing this yep. from what I understand. We thought, they thought that they could help them, like, create these chips, okay? Mm-hmm. They needed outside people to help them complete the hardware. So they start contracting Flair to do the work. And they also start contracting them on another console that they're working on that they called the jaguar oh so we've got the lynx the handheld console the panther which they're working on and then they also start working on a third console the jaguar yeah someone really likes big cats just big cats i don't know because it's like a predator they're gonna eat the competition but they're also adorable i don't know it's definitely this comes out of jack's book because he's a sociopath and he just like, I'm going to name everything off the big cats because I hate people and I'm going to fuck everybody over. Yes. Yes. Fuck you, yeah, man. This is why nobody ch- wants to hire me. We're going to chew on the bones of Sony executives. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Just okay. imagine what Jack sounds like. <laughs> anyway, I don't know who came up with this, but. <clears throat> so development uh, was, you know, so they're working on these things. They're working on these chips. And somewhere along the way, they start realizing that their work on the Jaguar is going much faster than their work on this Panther that they had like been contracted for. And so this left Atari with this weird choice that they essentially had multiple consoles in development. So like, which one do you pick? Well, the Panther was something that they had spent a lot of time and resources on. The Jaguar was looking to be a much more promising system. It was much more technologically advanced. So do they release what they know, okay, and release like a 16-bit slash 32-bit console into a time in which that was the norm? Or did they release something better than that, theoretically? So in the end, they decide that uh, they liked what Flair, you know, the work that Flair had been doing um, on the Jaguar. And so they make the decision that they're going to shelve the Panther, the original thing that they had been contracted for, and start working on the Jaguar. Even though the Panther was so far along that by some reports, it was almost ready to ship. Like it was pretty much ready for production and they had even started like sealing deals to start doing this. They proposed this. What if they made a console 
that could bring 3D graphics to the home market. Flair, from their work internally, determined that it would be much more technologically advanced than the Genesis slash Mega Drive or the Super NES, and it would theoretically be more cost-effective. 3D graphics were on the horizon. They were going to be the next big thing. And maybe they could be the ones that could break into that market. Now, side story, of course, PCs had been tinkering with this stuff for a while, but you know, we're not talking the mass market kind of stuff that were that they were thinking about, right? Yeah. Atari convinces them to close down Flare and create a new company that's like owned and directed by Atari. They call it Flare 2. <laughs> Very creative. So they call the company Flare 2. They called it Flare 2. <laughs> they went from Flare to Flare 2. So we have that one guy that only names everything after cats, and we have these other guys that can't think of another name that is also related to a stick you throw into the air that's glowing. <coughs> yep. Glowing stick in the air. Better company name than Flare 2. <clears throat> Easy peasy. Hire me, people. This is. You see. This is, it's like a bright light in the sky that flashes for a moment and then burns out spectacularly. You let everyone know that you're there and then you're gone. Poof. Perfect for our company. It also sends out this idea that maybe we're in distress and we need help. Distress signal. That's a good name yeah. for a company if you give yourselves names like that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Um, <clears throat> so... Okay, so they start Flare 2. And Martin and John stick around, but Ben decides to leave, and he goes on to work for Argonaut Software. We'll talk about him at the end. That's a good Um, company name. Okay, I'm going to stop with the names, but that's a good company (laughs) name. (laughs) Yeah, right? They start full force going into the Jaguar. You know, a quick side note, like... I think that they really... Just to sort of summarize this up, they were working on the two consoles in tandem. The Jaguar sort of pulled ahead, um, and they just ditched the Panther entirely. Entirely, you know, it was shelved. It never made it out of the prototype stage. If you're really that interested, you can go online and look at pictures. So they announced the Atari Jaguar in 1991, and they tell the public that they've ditched the Panther. Development took roughly two years until they could show off prototypes, and they showed off the first models of the console at the Chicago Consumer Entertainment Show in August of 1993. They claimed that the console would cost $200, although note it was $250 when it released, and that they had signed a deal with IBM to start manufacturing their hardware. But getting it to release brought its own set of problems. Apparently Sam, much like his father, was known for playing a lot of hardball with his business deals, and a lot of the industry was not willing to work with him. Some retailers refused to even carry the console before it had even been released. Because he was known for making deals that wouldn't come through. Because he, right. he, he would do risky speculations on what would come through. And wouldn't. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, I, I seem to remember reading an article where like his father, because um, I read like a whole like bio thing about his father. Because like I said, he was really this legend in the gaming industry. And that um, he was known in some circumstances and accused of like not paying contractors that he had contracted out for work. And that like people would have to show up at his office to beg him for the money that they were owed. So I think that these that... people all end up with EA in the end? <laughs> Is this what's going to happen? Well, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> this may be the one story we don't actually mention EA in, but they're here in spirit. Oh, we so. did. 
<laughs> Son of a bitch. We can't escape. <laughs> Electronic Arts. Buy our games and then buy them again and then buy them again and buy all of our DLC and then buy it again. Buy it again. Buy it again. Don't you want to pay for a horse? Don't you need horse armor? You got to buy it. You got to buy it. So he's playing hardball and pe- people don't trust him, right? Yeah. They, just like his dad, they don't trust him. At least that's the gist I got. Yeah. However, you know, Atari is a name. Atari's hitting the market again after so long. And so developers started signing up to work on games for the hardware. One source claims that 158 developers signed up. Another said it was over 200. I'm not sure at what point like their members are going on, but that just gives you a ballpark. (laughs) Regardless, immediately they start boasting about these numbers, claiming that hundreds of games are in development for the console. It's going to be crazy. It's there's going to be so much. You're not even going to know what to do with all the games. The end product of the hardware was a cartridge-based system with a Motorola CPU. It had 16 megabits of RAM, which was kind of low for a console of this generation. But it did have two 32-bit graphics processing chips. In total, it had five processors mounted on three different chips. One chip was a traditional Motorola 68000, and the other two, I think of their own design, they had nicknamed Tom and Jerry internally. Now, they heavily marketed their console as a 64-bit system. So in an era of 16 and 32-bit consoles, to have a 64-bit console was unheard of. And they wanted the world to know that they had made a 64-bit gaming console. But the marketing of the console was maybe a bit of a stretch. See, the Motorola chip that they used was a 16-bit processor, right? Two of the chips are 32-bit. One of the chips that was 32-bit was a CPU. And then, so the, the, you know, the central processing unit is 32. But some of the chips could technically process 64 bits. But most of the work is being done by two 32-bit chips, which worked in tandem, in their mind, adding up to 64 bits, right? So they weaseled themselves into that, uh, uh, into that claim. Mm-hmm. actually couldn't hold up in their defense some of the pieces were 64-bit and the data path leading from the dram to the cpu and the chips is 64 bits wide but is it really 64 bits kind of but like also not really and they didn't officially get called on it like for false advertising or something but they did get made fun of a bit in some gaming magazines and by the press so This quote is usually the one you see the most that's repeated from Electronic Gaming Monthly. Quote, If Sega did the math for the Sega Saturn the way that the Atari did the math for their 64-bit Jaguar system, the Sega Saturn would be a 112-bit monster of a machine. I I have like a personal theory about why these people are like that. Okay. And that is they... You, if, if you start out in the in any kind of industry that's a specialization, you will first always come in contact with people that are not specialists in that field. And so you can tell them anything and they will either act impressed because they don't understand or they will act like they don't understand and thereby also kind of be impressed. But it's going to be easy to impress people by just telling them anything and they won't get it anyway. But as soon as you get successful, you get in contact with other specialists and you tell them something and they're going to be like, I know the standard for today's technology and this doesn't seem viable. Mm-hmm. I will not buy your more technology and I will tell everybody to not buy it either. So what's really interesting about how you say that is that they their marketing leaned heavily, 
heavily into this 64-bit stuff. So they had this one commercial, this like little catchy advertisement that I watched, where <clears throat> basically imagine that there's this woman and she's standing up at a chalkboard, and there's all of these like adults in in like this like children's classroom, and she's yelling at them. Like, I don't know why all their advertisements are just yelling. They're yeah. all yelling all the time. And she's got three numbers on the board, and she's like, you know this console is 16 bits and this console is 32 and the Atari Jaguar is 64 bits. Now class, which one is better? And they're all like, you know, there's this guy in the front seat. He's like, Oh, duh, I don't know. Uh, and she's like, which one of these is better? And he's like, could you repeat the question? And she's like, Jaguar, 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 64 bits. Do the math. Right. Cause that was their slogan. Do the math. Which one is better? Okay. Yeah. And so to the average person, you'd go, well, shit, that's double the bits. And you'd be sold, right? I mean, if that's something that mattered to you. So um, here's a quote from Trip Hawkins, who is in charge of the 3DO. We've talked a little bit in passing about the 3DO in this podcast. I've heard about that before, yeah. When did that come up? When did it come up? So it came up when we talked about, if my memory serves, when we talked about Crash Bandicoot. Some of the games that they made before Crash Bandicoot. So so we'll talk about the 3DO um, in a future episode because it's part of this series. But okay, so Trip Hawkins, he's in in charge of the 3DO at the time. And he says, their CPU is 64-bit. Ours is 32-bit, and our co-processors are a lot more powerful doing the graphics and sound. Atari has trouble getting good sound during gameplay because of how they set up their bus structure. It's only because of an ambiguity in the law that they can even say 64-bit without having to explain what they mean. Even today, they still get heat for this. Their marketing tactics were seen by many in the industry as being misleading and deceptive, but they never budged on it the whole time. While we're working through this, they never budge on the fact that they, you know, that it's 64-bit. I mean, these marketing campaigns are not done by the people that develop the stuff, but they are done by lawyers and by marketing people figuring out how they can sell something. That's what a marketing person and a lawyer do when they work together is, right? They figure out how do I sell this pile of crap as Mm -hmm. something shiny and good in the bounds of legality. Right. One sticking point with the console. The controller was really weird. It was large and fat and had tons of buttons. I have just sent you a picture of this. I see it. Yeah. Let me let me describe it. Like imagine it's it's a it's a black. <laughs> Your face. Square, it's it's a black square. In the, <laughs> in the center, it has these two buttons that apparently all controllers have, like options and mm-hmm. select or however you could have. Every controller ever had those two <laughs> buttons in the center, slightly diagonal. And then to the right, you have three buttons instead of four, which is pretty edgy, which are A, B, and C. But they're and in then, reverse order. <laughs> in that? reverse order for some reason. Then left, you have um, the, um, what's what's the four buttons for the directions? D-pad. Called? The D-pad is to the left. And then on the bottom, you have like a dial pad, like for a modern telephone <laughs> underneath everything. Um, yeah, if it were, if the if the dial pad was bigger, you could pass it off as a phone. And is there numbers on top of that? I can barely read that. Is that numbers? Yeah, so there are numbers above the dial pad. It's like literally a dial pad on a phone. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll talk about did they want to did, did they want to do something about Using it also as a phone? No. So here's why they did this. <clears throat> Apparently, the the dial pad on the bottom didn't do much for most of the games that they released. But they're a throwback to the PC. 
okay? Because think about this. Imagine that you're playing a shooter on the PC and you need to switch between weapons, right? You'd click, oh, three is my shotgun and you'd click three on your keyboard to get your shotgun, right? That's what they were going for with this. They were trying to blend PC gaming with console gaming. And to do that, well, how do you switch between all of these weapons? So they put a, they put a number pad on there. So what this meant was, is that in theory, you could port PC shooters to the Jaguar pretty easily, but uh, it was a yeah. big controller for the time. Also, just note, the Super Nintendo had six buttons, and so unless you were playing one of the few, like very few games that utilized this weird number pad, you had less options to work with on the controller than like on the console they were trying to outmatch. Seriously, it looks like the off-brand controller you give to your little brother when playing <laughs> games. <laughs> Here, Thomas, take this one with the number pad. It gives you more <laughs> buttons to play with. Just, you know, looking back, some people loved it, some people hated it. And yeah, it had some functionality, but most, most games didn't even use the weird number pad. I have heard, even though it looks really strange, it was very comfortable to hold. I don't know. What what kind of... <laughs> I heard that people didn't really enjoy this, but I have held this controller and it feels really comfortable. <laughs> Listen, I read a lot of blogs of people trying to defend this console, really trying to be like, it was better than you think, I promise. <laughs> so, like, I, I bet the people that defend this console are about as big of edgelords as this controller is in itself. <laughs> oh, you just wait. <laughs> I can't wait to get to the end of this episode. Okay, so <laughs> later in the life of the console, they did take some feedback and they released a Pro Controller. And the Pro Controller had eight buttons. But it wasn't until way later, you know, and I'll give them some credit. I think they were really trying to blend like the old and the new. It just didn't pan out. Yeah, but the idea seems viable that you can port PC games more easily. Yeah. Because as we learned in the Scum episode, Porting is a huge issue to get games out. It really is. One other neat thing about the hardware, like the Lynx, the Jaguar came with the ability to system link to other consoles, meaning that you could have up to 26 people playing at once. Wow. Yeah. So unfortunately, none of this was ever used, but it was something that would be picked up by later consoles. Cool. A lot of the games that they claimed were on the way never materialized or even got further than just being pitched as something someone wanted to make. And so while this gets a bit ahead of the story, part of the reason had to do with the fact that the games that they were selling were on cartridges. So cartridges have a pretty limited storage space, and so the cartridges that they were selling couldn't make use of all of the processors of the system. And so because of this, developers weren't sure what the fuck to do with it. Plus, a lot of developers didn't know how to handle the new tech that was inside the machine. And so all the stuff that would really make the games work and like really be killer, they didn't know how to use. And so there, like there was no knowledge base to draw from. There was no like previous tech that was just like out there that was easily accessible that anyone knew how to get to. And, you know, there was sort of a disconnect between the people making the software and the people making the hardware. Like I talk a little bit this about this a little later, but like, there were rumors going around that the Tremules didn't give a shit basically at all about software and they were just more like interested in like the stuff you could hold, right? So like, what are the yeah. chips? Do we have the best chips? We have the best tech. And then like didn't care what people did with the software, right? Yeah. 
So there's this disconnect between this hardware that was theoretically really good for the time and the software that couldn't make use of it. So there's a lot of buildup for this release. Atari was a mature brand. Everybody knew what Atari was. And for a time, you know, like I said, Atari was synonymous with video games in general. I saw in an interview, someone once said that like at one point in time, Atari was the second most recognizable brand in the United States. Like when you ask people to identify them. It still kind of is a recognizable name, right? But mm-hmm. you, nobody ever touched an Atari these days. Yeah. Well, there's reasons for that. Um <laughs> I think this is what this story is going to be about. <laughs> but Atari was confident they would do well, and they heavily touted the fact that the console was made in the USA and that they were one of the last remaining American gaming consoles on the market. So the Atari is released, the Atari Jaguar is released in New York City and San Francisco as test markets in November of 1993. The box came with these giant cat eyes. And these huge red letters that said Jaguar. And the R of the word Jaguar is like a cat scratch. Okay. The console itself is this matte black design. It's flat. It's very sleek looking, rounded. You know, the lettering on it is this bright red. It has this really neat contrast. It's a very 90s idea of what cool is. Actually, I'm I'm talking a lot of shit here, but this looks pretty cool. So I'm... I, this is kind of a mix between 80s heavy metal and 90s Grinch, and I'm, I'm kind of into it. Now, um, I will say that what it did get made fun of a bit, and I, I can't ignore this because there's so many people on the internet who make this joke. If you look at the way that the inner part of the console sinks in and the outer part of the console sticks out, doesn't it kind of look like a matte black toilet seat? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Hmm. Thanks. Oh, now it's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think it looks so slick, man. I think it looks so cool for the 90s. the slickest toilet seat I've ever encountered. <laughs> I like my toilet seats to be slick. Yeah. <laughs> so, they released... <laughs> Serious the fuck up. <laughs> so they release it with five playable games on release, which was very low. And it was bundled with a game called Cybermorph. It was a weird little 3D ship game where you'd fly around in this weird, like sort of sort of colorful-ish landscape. And this woman with this green head would just pop up into the top, like left corner of the screen. And she would like, like yell at you in this monotone voice about like what your objectives were and stuff. And she'd be like, ship destroyed. And it was like really weird. But <clears throat> that was their flagship game that they ran with. Cybermorph. 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 I don't know. I don't know, dude. <laughs> Atari claimed that they would have more games out by Christmas, right? Because this is in November. And they're like, we'll have more games out by Christmas so that they could hit this holiday market. But games just didn't materialize for months. I will say that they did sell all of their original units. One figure said 17,000 units. Another said 20,000. Regardless, they sold everything that they wanted to sell in their original test markets. And the hope was is that if they could get this out early and get them into people's hands, that it would drum up support for a nationwide release. Yeah. Okay. But this is on the time frame. This takes place after the release of the Super Nintendo and what else was there at the time? The PS1 wasn't out yet. It was not. Right? Um, but the Mega Drive was. 
Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, it had been, it had been out for a while. Um, cause the super Nintendo released, I, I think in late 1990. So there was a few more games that were far more interesting to publish on yes. than this obscure Jaguar thing that is sold by someone who everybody knows is not a re- reliable business partner. Yes. At least in the industry, right? In the industry. Yes. And the in- industry is the people that make the games the publishers give the developers the money to make games yeah exactly yeah. they want to they want more games but they're still not going to be able to do a full release for for months and the games you know the games that came out that were in 3d i mean they were they were pretty cool for like you know at the time but you know reviews of them even then were like they're really slow paced they're awkward to play and they didn't particularly impress consumers but excitement was still high because it was like look at this proof of concept of what Atari can do, right? Like, here's yeah. what the next generation of gaming consoles is going to be. This is really crazy. So they bring out a full release the following summer, okay? So this is in 1994 at this point. And they expected yeah. that they would sell 500,000 units. But immediately upon release, it seemed like they had made a lot of promises that they couldn't keep. First off, there were major supply chain issues. And there just wasn't a market for this console in some countries. Europe barely got the, the, the consoles that they were promised. They were promised 250,000 consoles in time for Christmas, but they only received 25,000 uh, right at the beginning of December. And then they received another 25,000 like two days before Christmas. So that's pretty bad. Um, in Japan, they released it. And apparently by some metrics, they only sold about 5,000 consoles total over the course of um, the console's life. Yep. If some forces would be believed, Australia just didn't even get it. Like they just didn't even try there. And so um, sales were not great just right out of the gate. And, you know, this is, um, again, just a reminder that some retailers said they wouldn't even stock it at all. And and then when people were getting the consoles, they were hitting weird hardware issues. So like just really basic, like, of course, like, glitches and things like that would happen and things would crash or have issues you know that's normal for consoles but like the design came into question so okay you've you've had a you know a console before where you take a cartridge and you stick it in to whatever slot it's supposed to be in right and it usually fits right like it'll fit very flush with what you're putting it into well the opening on the console was bigger than the actual cartridge and so like you can even see it in the picture i sent you there oh no so you could Stick it in incorrectly and break something or so I don't know. And that and like you could also like it would just get filled with dust and crud and like gross shit and then everything would get oh. all messed up. There wasn't a cover for it. So like even if you put a game in it, it still wouldn't be enough to keep dirt out of the console. I don't know, it just seemed like a really rushed design choice. I don't know why they did this. Yeah, it's called console smegma and it builds up inside of technology that's used by teenagers and, and you don't you don't want to touch it and if you touch it you want to cut off your hand i mean have you ever like cleaned your you know like one of your controllers like you have that i do moment. clean my controllers very thoroughly very often because i find it disgusting have you ever like looked down at a controller that you haven't been paying attention to for like a year and you realize there's this disgusting buildup of funk in there and you just are ashamed of yourself <laughs> I don't talk about that. This is not a podcast for these topics. <laughs> You're the one who said the word smegma. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Did I? Did yeah. I? I don't know. We are more free spirited in Europe. I mean, 
You just read regularly use all the time. Yes, of course. I'll walk up to any random European and say, Good day, ma'am. How is your smegma today? <laughs> I'm from the United States and I'm cultured. I've yes. heard the Germans talk that's... about smegma all the time. Yeah, that's how you introduce yourself to um, people from this place. <laughs> um, don't. Don't do that. Just everybody that's <laughs> no, out there, don't do that. <laughs> just, just... Maybe I'm just going to cut out this entire part. Let's <laughs> <laughs> that's, ignore the segment. <laughs> but these asides are the best part. Someone, someone messaged me recently about the last episode. And they told me that they had stopped at the halfway point right after you had given people life advice about never following their dreams. <laughs> I was like, you gotta at least finish the episode. <laughs> Don't stop there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so back on track. <laughs> um, okay, so the, the opening for the cartridges was too big and the cartridges were too small. Right. And so you would have um, build up that would probably break the technology mm -hmm. over the long term. And that was just one of many issues that people ran into. But but the biggest issue that they just kept running into was the games, man. They did start releasing games, and some of the ones that came later were more interesting than what they released. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> just, <laughs> I will randomly think of the word console smegma. <laughs> And this episode, <laughs> I could just write the description now. In this episode of the podcast, Tyler tells Docs a story about the Atari Jaguar and the downfall of the Atari company. Docs talks about console smegma. <laughs> <laughs> the first time the words console smegma were used in episode uh, 11 <laughs> uh, I can do this no wait this isn't funny just, there's no humor here no um, no this is a very serious podcast uh, we need to talk about numbers it's very important okay, okay. again okay. I sell this console what, what, what have you been saying I was saying that the biggest issue that they were running into <laughs> was not console smegma. <laughs> it was the lack of games. Yeah. And that the later games that did come out were much more interesting. So two examples that come to mind are a game called Tempest 2000, which was actually a port of an arcade game that had amazing music. Um, we'll revisit this later. I can see your face <laughs> trying not to laugh. No, this is not funny. Tempest 2000. You can just see, to those of you who cannot see Dox's face, <laughs> he just keeps shuddering every time he thinks of the word smegma, and he just tries not to laugh. Also, we'll take this as a time to um, <laughs> respond to some feedback I recently got about the podcast, in which someone said that Dox's voice was, quote, sexy and beautiful, and he sounds as if he is 12 feet tall. And I want to tell all of you, those rumors are absolutely true. He is 12 feet tall. It is. We were talking about better games for this console called Tempest 2000. 
<laughs> I'm literally crying, but I can get through this episode. <laughs> okay. Okay, so the, uh, the other one was Alien versus Predator. This is the first Alien versus oh, cool. Predator game that got released. Did, did they acquire the rights <clears throat> to do that? Yeah, they did. And so um, it was sort of like Doom, but it was, it was imagine, slower-paced Doom, and you could pick between three different playable classes, a human marine, an alien mm-hmm. xenomorph, or a predator from the Predator films, and each had their own goals that you had to accomplish in a match. They had their own strengths and weaknesses, and the graphics are admittedly really awesome for the time. That sounds really sweet. Side note about that game, um, the game went through a bunch of problems, because it was made almost entirely by two brothers, two brothers, Jason and Chris Kingsley. <laughs> face. Uh, and they started working on it when the hardware wasn't finished. So they get this idea, right, that they're going to make this game. And Atari says, here's, here's what we're working with on our hardware. And in the 17 months that it took them to make the game, Atari changed the design of their console four times. Ugh. So they had to just keep remaking the game, essentially. Oh, no. From what I understand, the two of them then went on to eventually become the head of a studio called Rebellion that made the Alien vs. Predator franchise in the PS3 era of gaming. Um, and also, there's a fucking great commercial. I highly recommend you all watch it <laughs> Where <clears throat> for the Jaguar game. So it's this guy, and he's like sitting in his room at night, and he's like playing the game, and they're like hyping up how scary it is, right? And he's like in the throes of this game, and he's like really nervous, and all of a sudden, a hand gets put on his shoulder, and you see it's like a woman's hand, and he like jumps and screams. And he goes, oh, mom. And then he turns around and sees that her hand is being held by an alien hand that is controlling her hand. And he goes, mom, mom. And he screams and it just cues title flash alien versus predator. And it's like, don't play it in the dark or some shit like that. Nice. So I'd I'd want my mom to buy that. I mean, I'd be worried that something would happen to her and that she'd get eaten by a xenomorph. Yeah. Because I was like five years old when this came out. So, yeah. (laughs) But overall, I will still say that most of the game offerings were pretty weak. For example, uh, you know, this is right during the Mortal Kombat heyday. You know, it's all the rage at the time. And so a company made a game for the Jaguar called Kasumi Ninja that was supposed to be an attempt to tap into that market. It was bad. Like, it was really bad. Like, to give you an idea of how bad it was, one character was a Scottish fighter who would lift his kilt at other opponents and it would shoot fireballs out from underneath his kilt. Good times. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I did... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> good, good sidestep good just you know <laughs> i did take a look though at what eventually came out to see if i could find anything interesting and here are things that i saw that i recognized or like things that had notoriety later note a lot of these are ports but not all so doom came out and heavily used the controller though yeah. th- by this time doom had already had like a huge run on the pc and wasn't like nearly as desirable because a lot of people had already played it Um, But the controller really worked for it. Um, Pitfall Mayan Adventure came out. Mm -hmm. Rayman was a Jaguar exclusive 
for a while mm. until the company started doing poorly and then they scored a deal to port it to the playstation which is actually where Rayman I is an og jaguar product rayman is an og jaguar product oh, i love rayman so much i never knew i yep. always thought it was kind of a sony deal or something nope developed for the jaguar sick I never knew. Super Burnout was on there. Wolfenstein 3D. And apparently the Wolfenstein port of the Jaguar was better than the PC port because it had like upgraded graphics and stuff. Worms was was on there. Um, nice. Bubsy in Fractured Furry Tales. They were really trying to push Bubsy. Like if you don't know who Bubsy is, Bubsy was this cat that they were really trying to push as like this alternative to Sonic. It did not work. Double Dragon 5, NBA Jam, you know, there's, there's recognizable Those stuff. Those are good games. There. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, uh, if, as I said, not Wolfenstein was illegal in Germany at the time. No shit. So, yeah, we never had that game for a while. Huh. I think that has been lifted. It's not illegal, it was on the so-called index, which means it could not be sold on the free market. Yeah. You and I really need to do that episode we've been talking about sometime. But yeah, but still, good games. Um, Wolfenstein yeah. was intense and... Worms, awesome strategy game with kind of a time time thing, time aspect about it. I love that. That's good. So Games. I want you to imagine this situation in which you are a young child and you don't have a console and you go over to the bargain bin and there's an Atari Jaguar in there and like, you know, Doom and Rayman and Wolfenstein and NBA Jam and, you know, Burnout are all just sitting in there for hyper cheap. You might think, why the hell is this console in this bin, right? It's just that those ones I named were like kind of it. <laughs> like, you know, like there there were a few like Atari, like Atari exclusives, which we'll talk about here at a few, but like they're just, it just didn't have longevity compared to some of the other systems. But yeah. Okay. To give you a number, I couldn't get an exact number here, but somewhere between 50 and 55 games were released for the console, like total. Um. Okay. I, I I want to say that it's not much, but I'm also I'm unsure. Um, I, I can't come up with any com comparative number. I mean, like the PlayStation had like hundreds and hundreds of games, yeah. you know, over the course of its life. Yeah, just fifty doesn't seem a lot, but it would be interesting to figure out. Maybe we can Twitter that later if we figure that out. Yeah, we could Twitter that later. Apparently, only twenty-two of those games came from developers outside of Atari. A lot of games ended up just being ports of sixteen-bit games with minor changes or just you know, old Atari games that they tweaked a bit. Um, you know, there, there wasn't a ton of innovation on there. And, yeah. you know, I will say again that the way that with how the console was designed, it was pretty decent for playing PC shooters. And initially in the beginning, in 1993, Atari did outsell the 3DO, but started falling behind in 1994 when the PlayStation came onto the market, the Sega Saturn came onto the market, and both consoles beat Jaguar sales right out of the gate. By the end of 1994, they had sold roughly 100,000 consoles, which was only a fifth of what their expectations were. There are a lot of rumors floating around at this time. I really want to stress to take some of these with a grain of salt. I mean, I was like digging through like forum posts and stuff, so you know, who knows how yeah, much of this is true. Yeah. Um, Apparently, Sam was known to be a bit heated behind closed doors. One rumor claimed that he would get really angry during board meetings, that that he would do things like tear his shoes off and pound them on the table and stuff, and uh, was just like kind of difficult to work with. His public face also, uh, he was known for making like a lot of bombastic claims. At one point, he publicly claimed that the PlayStation was ruining them because if I understand correctly, he was claiming that 
the PlayStation was sold for one price in Japan and then sold at a cheaper price in the United States, which was undercutting them uh, and, you know, their pricing and putting them out of business. And so he was accusing them of unfair business practice practices to specifically target them and undercut their prices to put them out of business. He talked about suing them. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. I don't even know that that would have held up in court. On the game side, when people asked him, like, well, why, you know, all these other consoles are putting out all these like tons of games. Why aren't you putting out games? I don't have his exact quote here, but he essentially addressed the lack of games as being a good thing because he claimed that the lack of third party games for the system was good for Atari's internal profitability. Um, I guess like the implication would be that if Atari is making all of these games and that, you know, you only have so many choices and most of them are Atari, then Atari gets to keep that revenue, right? Also, you don't have to do as much. You don't have to adjust your console to all the different issues all the different developers have with your console. Right. So this just keeps a lot of work cost from your shoulders. But, you know, this didn't go well with people who own the system and wanted more games, right? Yeah. And, no. and as the magazine Next Generation put it, quote, Thus far, Atari has spectacularly failed to deliver on the software side, leaving many to question the actual quality and capability of the hardware. With only one or two exceptions, Tempest 2000 is cited most frequently, there have just been no truly great games for the Jaguar up until now. End quote. I mean, up until today, this is the most, the, the biggest viable selling point that goes along within discussions about which consoles to get. There's always mm-hmm. how many games will there be for this game, mm-hmm. uh, for this console? And will this be worth it to just get it? Or will I just be an outcast in the gaming world because I can't play any of the games other people's play? Yep. And it's it's a deciding factor, right? Like, what are all my friends yeah. getting? How am I going to be able to play with them? And, um, you know, I think that just personally, that's why I just really enjoy the freedom of PC gaming. But there is still a significant majority of people who play video games in the world on consoles. Am I going to be the weird kid with a PS4 or mm-hmm. am I going to have a Switch like anybody else? Exactly. Yep. Um, internally, employees complained about terrible crunch, management that was just uneducated about the market, direction of the company, lack of focus on software. I heard it was just not great to work there. But Atari kept churning out stuff, and they tried to release a bunch of add-ons to the system that they thought could increase sales. As part of the initial hype for the console, Atari let everybody know that sometime during the life of the console, they would be releasing a virtual reality headset, which was totally unprecedented at the time. Well, like at least in regards to what they wanted to do with it. And we're not talking like old school like you'd go to an arcade and there'd be that like sort of like fake quasi vr we're talking like real deal motion sensing in like the early 90s in-home consoles that's like fucking unheard of yeah they advertise this heavily at trade shows this is like one of their key things like this is why you want to get in with atari because we're going to have all this crazy shit including a vr headset it was supposed to cost 250 dollars they put a ton of development time into it um At some of these trade shows, there were working prototypes that people got to mess with, but it was really complex tech at the time. I mean, you got to think most people were playing like Sonic and Mario and just to to, to throw $250 virtual reality tech at them would be like, it was, it was a big ask to, to get them to buy something like that. To this day, VR doesn't sell well. It's true. It's a thing that's kind of cool and people like it's much cheaper now, but Mm -hmm. still the VR market is tiny in comparison. Even though Steam is pushing it so much, it's it's not 
the big part of the gaming market. It's true. What we do know is that they were working with a company called <clears throat> Virtuality that made VR arcade machines at the time, but it, it just never panned out and it was something that they never released. The big add-on that they did drop, however, was called the Jaguar CD, and this released in 1995. It cost $150, and it came bundled with two games, Blue Lightning, which was a flight simulation game, and Vidgrid, which was a puzzle game. It also came with a demo of the first level of Myst, like the computer game Myst, yeah? Nice. And a CD soundtrack to the aforementioned game to Tempest 2000 because it was a real banger. It could handle 790 megabytes of data on the CDs. It was twice as fast as the cartridges. And it had the ability to play auto C- audio CDs if you wanted. Um, and it had like, when you put in an audio CD, I don't know if you ever did this with your old PlayStation, but do you remember how it would have like a visualizer on the screen? Oh yeah, I remember that. I spent a lot of time with that. Yeah, so the Jaguar had this and it, you know, like like a cool visualizer that you could do with CDs and that was seen to be like really cool. Yeah. You could put on these backgrounds that would also like like an equalizing, like visualize your equalizer. That was cool. Yeah. Kids are so easy to entertain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the CD add-on was kind of awkward. The console was already sort of on its last leg. It had taken them longer to release than they expected. It didn't really catch on. And you know, it wasn't the first CD add-on to be released or fail. Of course, yeah. the Genesis had the Sega CD, 3DO had CDs as a baseline, so did the PlayStation. But the big thing is that Atari didn't really have the technological know-how to make CDs work. And 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 so CDs to them were a bit of an afterthought. And this has seemed to be one of the issues with the system, that they just didn't anticipate the importance of CDs in the console gaming market and how much they would matter. They only total released 15 games for the Atari CD. Some notable ones that stood out to me were Myst, Dragon's Lair, and Primal Rage, which was like a fighting game. Did they release this just to squeeze the money out of the Jaguar? I mean, you probably don't know. But is, is it just like this, this, the lifespan of this console is ending? Let's release a weird per- peripheral. We can sell a bunch of those and make some money with this until we kill this console. So the gist I get is that they were trying like desperately to try and keep up with market demand and they could just never get it. Like they were always a dollar short and a day late for everything that they were trying to do. So like instead of anticipating that the market was moving towards CDs, like a lot of companies were, they went with cartridges that they knew, right? And then later realized, well, shit, CDs are so much better for what we're trying to do. Let's make a CD add-on. But by the time they did, the Atari had already sort of fallen out of favor and no one really bought the CD add-on, right? And so like, if they had just thought back previously and started with CDs, I think that they would have really like taken up a large share of the market, but they didn't. Um, Also, what was really weird, even the people who bought the cds complained because the packaging was like really shitty they came in these like cardboard boxes like you'd normally expect right okay so imagine you bought a i don't know you bought wow or something back in the day it'd come in a cardboard box that was on the shelf and then inside would be a jewel case and the jewel case would have the cd in it okay so inside instead of a jewel case it was like a cardboard cover that you just get your CDs out of is like these weird like folding cardboard things i just thought it was a really strange decision but like I don't know. Given what I have read about this, maybe they were just really strapped for cash. Who knows? Weird. So it would like, if you if you check it, it would flop around and it would feel like you're breaking your CDs. It could, yeah. Oh, that's weird. It's not doing well. 
how do you drum up interest in the system? Um, also, I guess I should say real fast to, to put a, to put a cap on that CD stuff a month after they released the CD add on and it didn't sell executives from the company started siphoning away, siphoning away resources from the Jaguar because things look bad. Mm-hmm. And they were mm-hmm. like, if the CD can't save it, then like maybe nothing can. And then it didn't save it. And they started pulling money away. Yeah. So with this in mind, they're trying to figure out how to drum up drum, you know, interest in the system. My gut says they wanted to know how to get rid of their stock. Okay. Like how do we sell all this stuff that we have? At one point, Sam Tramiel decides that they're going to start running cheesy infomercials for the Jaguar. Before I even tell you about this infomercial, I want to preface it with a quote from GameCritics.com. They did not like the console, just as a starting point. Quote, The death of Atari and its Jaguar console was unbearable to watch. In its final days, the only mention of the Jaguar was made on late-night television infomercials about as silly and repellent as the console that they advertised. Atari knew that it was doomed, and the Tramiel spared no dignity in the fire sale of what remained. (laughs) So I have watched this infomercial. It is so bad, Docs, and it is so cringe that it might be my favorite infomercial I have ever seen in my life. Here's the plot. There's a guy named Bob who is playing an old 16-bit console while he waits for his girlfriend to show up at their apartment. Some crazy guy named Jack, who has this insane, crazy, spiky hair, starts talking to Bob through his TV and sucks him into his TV into this dark cave where an Atari Jaguar is set up. So like Bob is like in this chair that he's like strapped into. And in this room, he's in this cave. There's like this Atari console in front of him and all these shelves with Atari shit on it. And so Jack walks around in this leather jacket and just basically screams at Bob for a half an hour, just like berating him, telling him how awful he is, telling him how much he sucks by playing his current console. And they do all these situations where like his life could be better if he had a Jaguar and they keep slipping in, do the math, right? So it'll be like, okay, so, um, you know, Bob is working at an office And he walks in and he's like talking to his boss and the boss like orders him to do shit. But then they show him what his life would be like if he has the Jaguar and he's the boss. And this like sexy lady comes in and she like sits on his desk, like all sultry. And she's like, I ordered your burger. Would you like me to also order fries with that? Right, Nick did fantasy, <laughs> and Bob's there, and he's like, "Wow, will this really happen to me if I buy a Jaguar?" And Jack goes, "No, Bob, come on, it's a metaphor, Bob." <laughs> so, so he keeps yelling at Bob. You know, he keeps screaming at him to do the math, and you know, Bob just constantly has all these reasons why he doesn't want to buy an Atari Jaguar. And Jack just gives him shit over and over, and they just keep cutting to this footage of a Jaguar that is like in the cave and they keep pretending that there's this screaming jaguar in the cave when clearly there wasn't and maybe the cringiest part of the whole thing is that they keep bringing out this aforementioned like highly sexualized woman to convince bob in all these scenarios and so she keeps coming out into the cave and like berating him and so like you know she'll come out in a red latex outfit and get in his face and be like bob do you have what it takes to play against me and like So they play and she beats him at this fighting game and she'll say shit like, perhaps you need a 
tamer game, Bob, because this game and I both need a big boy to play us. So what? (laughs) At the end, the sexy lady comes out in this jacket that looks like she's wearing fucking tinfoil or some shit. And she talks him into buying the console and kisses him on the lips and says this. I'm dead serious. This is fucking verbatim what she says. That was a 64-bit kiss. Powerful and good enough to last a long time. <laughs> so Bob, Bob, gets, Bob gets warped back to his old life. And it turns out, as he's playing the Jaguar, he's dating the sexy lady from the cave. That's his girlfriend. They play for a minute. And she turns to him and starts growling like a jaguar because now her eyes are spooky jaguar eyes. And how long? How long is this infomercial? It's a half an hour. Look it up. It's called the cave. Okay, like they're in the cave. It is totally nineties. It is completely ridiculous. It is highly sexist. It's so fucking ridiculous. But you could buy the console. If you called right now for $159 plus shipping and handling, and it would come bundled with a free game. Um, Fun fact about this $159 plus shipping and gambling, or whatever that was, I don't know, packaging. um, Yeah, shipping and handling. That's something, handling, that's something you only do in the US. In Germany, for example, it's known that if you want to sell something to a German, you always have to tell the full price. Otherwise, Germans will be very skeptical. Mm. So, so for example, that also they do it on cruise, cruise ships for the American um, tickets for cruise ships. They will always give them the chance to pay for every drink that they buy mm-hmm. because it's always plus something, something you can also afford. For Germans, the tickets always include everything. Germany is always by all inclusive things. They want the honest price, otherwise they won't buy it. Because they think if you tell them plus something, something, Germans will always be like, oh, I don't trust this American man. Um, so yeah, they uh, also in general advertisement, they would build it differently. Small marketing sidekick here. Well, it's because it's shitty advertising, man. Like, you know, you go, you go to the United States. Okay, you want to order something in the United States, right? And um, I don't know, you're living in Oklahoma. I don't know. And so you go online. Let's say you're buying online. And you not only have to buy the item, but then you later get told how much the shipping and handling is. And then you also have to pay tax. The tax isn't included as you go on, right? And like some of that is because, well, you know, they don't know where you're buying from until you tell them that you want to buy stuff. But like, you know, you the price that's on the sticker at the store or online even isn't often the price that you pay. And so, like, I don't know, people hate that. That always confused me when I visited the US, that mm-hmm. the price on the things is not the price that you pay. Yeah. But yeah, I once heard in a documentary that this kind of stems from this American ideal of financial freedom. Mm-hmm. that every financial step that I take is decided by myself and I can stop at any given moment. And the German just wants to get fucked up for the, a fixed amount of money right. and get all the mojitos he can get. For that <laughs> I want unlimited mojitos. <laughs> so given this fire sale that is going on, what do you think Sam Tramiel does from what you understand from him now? What do you think Sam's out there doing talking about the Jaguar? I mean, he's, he's, he's probably 
pretty pushy about it, uh, trying to 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 get the stock up, right? You see, the ja- listen, Docs, the Jaguar was doing so well that they were already developing the Jaguar 2. It had been such a hit that they were working on another one, baby. Um, that, but it, so he was pretending. <laughs> okay, so he was, like, doing, he was doing the Peter Molinier thing. That is like, ah, oh, this is incredible technology. We will do another one. Let's <laughs> get into this. Give me all of your money. Mm-hmm. Jokes wow. aside, he was talking about the fact that they had internally created a couple of prototypes for something that could be a successor to their console, but that was never going to hit the market. Like, did ever. he go to prison for insider trading in the end? Uh, well, <laughs> well, we'll talk about him here in a minute. Um, <laughs> so the best stats for the console sales um, that I could find. So I was reading this article on GameCritics.com, and they talk about um, like GamePro had a bunch of statistics. So they're like both citing GamePro and also giving their own context. Quote. According to GamePro, the Jaguar ended up selling less than 250,000 units. To put that number into perspective, that's less than half the number of CDI consoles sold, around one-tenth of the amount of 3DO and N-Gage consoles sold, and even one-half the number the original Xbox consoles sold in Japan. (laughs) I read another bit from Stockholder Reports that year. The news was dire. Quote, From the introduction of the Jaguar in late 1993 through the end of 1995, Atari sold approximately 125,000 units of Jaguar. As of December 31st, 1995, Atari had approximately 100,000 units of Jaguar in inventory. There could be no assurance that Atari's substantial unsold inventory of Jaguar and related software can be sold at current or reduced prices if at all. So even their stockholders, at their stockholders meeting, they were like, we have 100,000 consoles. We don't know that we can sell them for less money. We don't know if we can even sell them. Landfill stock, right? In late 1995, Sam Tremiel had a minor heart attack, which forced him to step down from the head of the company, and his father, Jack, took over again. Now, Atari had some money in the bank, apparently due to winning some lawsuits. I could not figure out which lawsuits this meant. And some investments that they had made, but they had little to show in upcoming tech for like the later years. Reportedly, their revenue dropped by half, like company-wide in 1995. The infomercials didn't really seem to help them at all. They were sitting on all these Atari Jaguars that they couldn't sell. In early 1996, there were reports that Atari had started laying off people in the company. There was journalistic speculation that they had even stopped working on the Jaguar at all. Insiders insiders started leaking that the company was in a bad place and that they were basically just trying to liquidate as much of their product as they possibly could before they got out. Get off the boat. Mm -hmm. Everybody for themselves. In 1996, they announced that they just wanted to focus on making PC games for a while and that they weren't going to be working on the Jaguar much anymore. And then that didn't really pan out. The, ge- the console dropped to $99 pretty much everywhere just to clear out what they had in warehouses. They started selling the parts to the Jaguar to pretty much anyone that would buy them. I, If I remember reading correctly, there was like a dental company that made like, like equipment for dentist office that liked the sleek case of the Jaguar and just bought all of their old cases and repurposed them for some like dental instrument. Yeah, it kind of looks like the stuff the dentist puts in all of their instruments. I, I see that. Yeah, that's a good use for it. If you took the Jaguar and like put like 
rotated it 90 degrees upward so that it stood upright and put legs on it and then attached it to like a like a piece of equipment that I think was like a scope I think it was supposed to be and painted it white and that's what it looked like yeah you could also if you turn around you can just use it as a kidney pan could have sold it to surgeons <laughs> yes of course yes um okay so if it wasn't clear the Tramiel family wanted out so they ended up leaving the company and then eventually after after a series of sales in February of 1998 Hasbro Interactive yes the toy company purchased almost all of the licenses to Atari for $5 million from its parent company. In 2001, Hasbro sold Atari to a French company called Infogrames Entertainment. I know that they put out a bunch of games under the Atari brand, like they rebranded to be Atari. Um, and they did put out some interesting games like post, like post-merger, rather, post-buyout. They did Driver. That's what I remember. See... I know that they, under the Atari name, put out Neverwinter Nights. I don't know if you've seen Neverwinter oh, Nights. Yes, 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 yes. And so they owned they owned um, the Atari rights until 2013, when all of their existing divisions declared bankruptcy again. In 2014, a year later, they decided that, under the Atari name, they wanted to move into social casino gambling. <laughs> okay, so like gambling on like social media venues i don't know but they shrank their staff to about 10 people and then they didn't really do much after that so then for a time they just licensed existing atari titles and remakes to other companies apparently in the future from what i have read their two ventures are about to be they are opening atari themed hotels in the united states um sometime in the next couple of years and they are apparently trying to release a console called the Atari Box. It was supposed to come out in 2020. It may come out this year. It got delayed due to COVID. It's some like console PC slash hybrid that runs on Linux. And I guess like it doesn't take CDs. It doesn't take cartridges. It's like its own little box that almost looks like an old Atari 2600. And it like you, it connects to the internet and you can like download games off the store, I guess. And it has some subscription service. I don't know, man, they announced it years ago. I'll be really interested to see if they like, it actually comes out and if they end up entering the console market again. It reminds me of that thing that Nintendo released. Um, that was, that looked like the, didn't it look like the super Nintendo, but it just had all the games on it. All mm -hmm. the classic Super Nintendo games, and you could just buy it as a thing. It was pretty expensive and sold out pretty fast, but there yeah. was no subscription service to it. You just had it. Right. Um, a lot of companies from around this time have done similar things. Like the Genesis did one. Um, the, the PlayStation did one. I know because I bought one for my dad, um, mm -hmm. which he was really pumped about. And they're basically just like little mini versions of the old consoles that run an emulator and let you play yeah, running the games. Yeah, running that Nostalgia train that's yeah. going pretty fast right now. Yep. And... Is Jack still running this? So no, Jack got out. So let's actually talk aftermath here. So, okay. you know, now that we've sort of finished our, this is the timeline here. So Jack Tramiel retired in 1996 and left the industry. Yeah. Now it is unclear to me if he did anything related to the industry after that, but um, he died in April of 2012 at the age of 83. And there were some like long bios about him because he had just done so much for the industry. It's hard to tell what happened to the rest of the family, including Sam. The best that I could tell is that most of them leaned really hard into real estate investments 
and then moved into like financial markets and money management. But I will say that one of Jack's sons, Leonard, was a part of the gaming industry for a while. So we hadn't talked about him, but he was like, he got offered a job at the company because his father owned it, right? And um, people sometimes referred to him as, quote, the smartest person at Atari. So it's like no surprise that he kept doing tech-related things, but it was kind of hard for me to track down what exactly he did. Last I read, he had retired, but he still goes to conventions and does interviews sometimes regarding old consoles. Um, I read one as early or as recently as 2020. Someone had interviewed him about his work on the Jaguar. So So he's some kind of background tech guru in the industry. Yep. Now, the guys from the original Flare Technologies company, Martin Brennan stayed in the tech industry and went on to work for a few different companies. His latest venture that I could dig up has been a MIDI audio jukebox jukebox that could play all kinds of music. Um, So, like, you could put CDs in it, you could download your MP3s to it, you could stream your favorite, you know, whatever, Spotify. Um, It looked pretty cool. I think it's called The Brennan, which is after his last name. John Matheson worked for a few tech places. He ended up eventually working at NVIDIA in the early 2000s, and I just can't seem to find where he ended up after that. Um... Ben Cheese did work at Argonaut Software and Nintendo and helped them to develop the chips that were used in the Super Nintendo. But after that, other details of his life are light because it appears he unexpectedly died of cancer in early 2001. Oh, no. Yeah. I just, not not the cancer thing, that's sad, but I, I thought of something funny with Matheson. I just thought how that NVIDIA um, mm-hmm. hiring talk must have gone. He was like in the room and they were all like, hey, why should we hire you? And he's like... I just walked to the trash bin outside and there was these blueprints inside of there. I don't know. I, just one week ago, I had this long talk at AMD, but they didn't want to hire me after my internship. And But now I have this set of blueprints here and I, I could leave them. I got a contract. Yeah, for a price. <laughs> All of the things we say in this podcast are entire complete bullshit. None of this is true. All of these people probably run very respectable businesses. This is just us fucking around. Don't get mad at us. Dear John Matheson, I hope that you are doing well and I don't think that you steal things. Thanks. No, it's, just, it's just a funny thought. It's really we funny just to like imagine to that everything you achieved in your life only comes because you're a fucking thief. But we're not saying that. You're we not, are absolutely not saying that. Like, no. <laughs> even though we're, even though we're, jo- it sounds like we're joking. Yeah, we're, we're, we're really joking. joking. We're gonna get yeah. sued. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the Jaguar? <laughs> so what's the legacy of the Jaguar? Well, first off, I left out a bit because I thought we'd save it for the end. So. In May of 1999, Hasbro decided to release the rights to the Jaguar into the public domain. So what this meant was that if anybody wanted to create and publish software for the console, they no longer had to contact Hasbro and ask them for licensing. And so this included all the games that had been in development but never got released. So they put out, like part of their statement they put out, they wrote, We realize there is a passionate audience of diehard Atari fans who want to keep the Jaguar system alive, and we don't want to prevent them from doing that. We will not interfere with the efforts of software developers to create software for the Jaguar system. So, because of this, there is a large homebrew community for the Jaguar. Since then, there have been 85 released homebrew games, according to Wikipedia, and oodles of small games and demos. 
Several of them are games that had been in development and never released. One of them was actually a follow-up to Space War. Like, yes, that's Space War that we did an episode on. Yeah, nice. Yeah, Space War was a huge influence for all kinds of games that spawned after it. Space War was one of the first games that ever existed. Yeah. Turns out Space War got apported to the Atari 2600 in yep. 179, or I'm sorry, 1978. And so they decided to like remake it as a modern thing. But the remake wasn't a particularly good game, good game, and it started like getting away from what it originally was. And so they internally set it aside and released a different game instead. But there are companies that used to sell physical copies of the prototype at one point that you could play on your Jaguar. That's really cool. Yeah. Apparently, because of like this, um, and you know, you were talking about this nostalgia factor, the Jaguar has had this weird resurgence in recent years. Um, Wikipedia tells me that the highest number of homebrew games for the Jaguar was actually released between 2016 and 2017, and that there's this big cult following around making stuff for the system. And like, I was reading about games where people will be like, okay, we're going to publish this on like Steam or whatever, but what if we also ported it to the Jaguar just for kicks? So, like, now it's, like, this weird fucking hipster thing where people like to, like, port their games to the Jaguar? I don't know. but I, I make video games, but not for the normal market. I make it for people that uh, do enjoy uh, uh, this. It's a vague console from the early 90s that people have been playing that have a more distinct taste in the hobby of video games. One might not call it a hobby, but... A destiny. <laughs> yes, I make art, and the only art that I will produce on is the Atari Jaguar circa 1993. I only succumbed to this steam trash to finance my finer endeavors. <laughs> so, weirdly to me, what is bizarre is that the Jaguar has done the best since it's been completely removed from the people who made it and went open source. So, like, there are Jaguar publishing groups that go to conventions. Sometimes they even hold like small Jaguar conventions of their own. And so it's just like this big homebrew community popped up. That's cool. And so you have this weird console that flopped really hard and it's just being kept alive by this dedicated group of people who make strange shit for it. It's like really fun to see. But it's good hardware, right? For the generation. Yeah. So interestingly, aside from all the, 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 the technical bits that were just bad design. Well, about that. So a lot of the development issues that came around in the, the back in the 90s have gone away because remember I told you that like, okay, it was brand new tech, right? So if you had an issue with this weird combination of chips, you didn't know what to do. You'd have to ask somebody who either worked on it previously, which there were very few, or, yeah. you know, you just have to wing it and hope it didn't crash, right? But now, I mean, we're decades later. And so people understand the code. They understand what the machine is capable of. And so they've really been able to push the console to its limits and show off the neat stuff that it could have done. And so some have postulated that with a couple of like cheap tweaks to the hardware and a little bit of foresight, that Atari could have blown the PlayStation out of the water. It had a faster disk read speed. It was better at smoothing out bad textures. It had more brand recognition, right? But all of this was not utilized in a way that say, could have saved the console at the time. And so, you know... To, to add to that too, Atari was hemorrhaging money, and so when you come, if we're going to make the comparison to the to the PlayStation, if Sony had an issue, they could throw money at it until it was fixed. Atari could not. That's what we remember from the Crash Bandicoot guys, right? That mm -hmm. they got drowned in money 
to finish Crash. And if you can't afford that, you're, of course, at a huge disadvantage. Yeah. Now, let's say you wanted to play the Jaguar today. Um, Some of the games got ported to later consoles, but your best bet is to probably emulate it. Though I've heard that emulating stuff from the Jaguar doesn't really do it justice. I haven't tried it myself, though. I'm just going off of random internet comments, which, as you and I both know, are never wrong and are completely trustworthy about everything that they write. I think that's a, that's a huge issue with the kind of research we have to do for this podcast is that we only do either secondary sources, mm-hmm. interviews with the people that were involved, so they are obviously biased, right. or we do comments from random people on forums that mm-hmm. claim to have an idea of what was going on. So none of the things we say have sourcing that's reliable. Yeah. I mean, I have started like picking up some books that I can source out of, but and you know, and there's people in there that they interviewed, but again, we're we're not going back and interviewing somebody in the 80s. So yeah, no. you gotta take all this with a grain of salt. Um <laughs> I will say about emulating, I've heard good stuff about RetroArch. I guess there are some um, some cores you can download that emulate the Jaguar pretty well. Okay, so <clears throat> to wrap this up, so when we look back and I read all these articles, the Jaguar is considered to be one of the worst console blunders of this era, perhaps like ever, in, in very bombastic claims. I don't know that I totally agree with that, but, but why is it often referred to this? What made it fail? It's, it's tempting to say that sometimes, yeah. It is. Plus, it gets you lots of clicks on your website when you mm-hmm. read, like, worst business decision ever made. Yeah. Why? You know? So what made the, you know, for a time, the greatest gaming company ever, you know, push out an infomercial to try and move stock, right? What made it fail? Here's my, my list of summary. It was hard to develop for it. It had a very small game library. It yeah. didn't stand up to the other consoles of the time period. Um, it had brand recognition with older gamers, but not newer ones. They didn't know how to work with outside developers and that there were family issues with the Tramiels. And so the Atari Jaguar is seen as a marker of where not to tread and how not to conduct your business. And, you know, Atari was just too small to compete with the giants that they were trying to take on. They couldn't keep up with the fourth generation consoles that they were trying to replace And then they got smoked by the fifth generation consoles that came after them. You know, it's possible that Atari just put the emphasis on wrong things, right? Like, do people really give a fuck about processing power? Like, I don't think about that when I like pick up a console or I pick up something. I think, does it have good games on it? Is it going to be fun, right? Does everybody know the reason why VCRs are successful and, and not the other thing that existed? Like there was two competing versions of that kind of tape recording and the VCR succeeded because the porn industry picked it up. I did not know this. Yeah. Oh um, man. And so yeah, but it, not the, surprised. It, the if you if you sell something that is used in combination with a medium with a, with, mm-hmm. with that yeah, that you consume, you get successful if most publishers come to you. Yeah, and the you know what they put forward was this sleek, cool '90s design, right? But you know. <laughs> Who gives a fuck about processing power if you don't use it well? And it's not really clear that they did, given what we know about the console now. And so, like, this advertising of bits, right, like how many bits the system had, was kind of like a harbinger of things to come, but certainly not the last time that a console would tout those numbers, right? Like, we'll talk about this later, but the Nintendo 64 is talking about 64 bits, right? That's what it's trying to, like, to tout. So, yeah. And that's really one of the last consoles that I can think of that did that, 
because who gives a fuck about bits? We care about whether games are good. And and I'm not trying to speak for the gaming community, and I'm not trying to act like I'm some voice here, but like, I don't know. Here's a quote. From its wacky controller to its old school emphasis on shallow arcade light titles, the Atari Jaguar is not a missed opportunity or a glorious swan song, but rather the sum of everything that went wrong with Atari's console dreams. Moving forward with the rest of this series, I think it's really to, to think broader, right? Because I'm going to do more of these. I think it's really fascinating to think about the sheer number of choices that people had to pick from during this like transitionary time. So many companies were trying to make the switch from 2D to 3D and failed. PCs were figuring out how to navigate that market, but getting that to the home consoles was was different. And so you know, this is a really interesting time for gaming that I grew up in. And so I wanted to focus on it as a, the- as a series. So moving forward. That's really interesting. Um, so we're going to go through th- several um, tries on mm-hmm. breaking into that. Am I right? Yep. And we'll talk about the companies that stuck and the companies that didn't. So episodes that we'll talk about in the future in this generation are the 3DO, which might, depending on um, some metrics, might have come out slightly before the Jaguar. We'll talk about that later. The 3DO Interactive Multiplayer, the Atari Jaguar, the Sega Saturn, the PlayStation, and the Nintendo 64. Okay, so PS2 rings in the Generation 6. Yep. Cool, thank you. You're welcome. So what are your thoughts on this, Docs? Uh, I've not been listening. I'm mostly thinking of um, console smegma. No. <laughs> console smegma. Hashtag console smegma. Hashtag No, I like the weirdness of this. Mm, and I kind of knew that, especially since we are started doing these episodes, that especially this time it, it started to get wild within the console market. But it's nice to get an in-depth view on it. So I appreciate this. And I like that um, we got to know someone like Jack because I think we didn't get to know someone like him before that was as um, rough as he is described by you. So we'll talk about Jack another time, but Jack has a really crazy history that I I don't even know that I want to spoil in this episode because he's a really fascinating, enigmatic person that has sort of shown up in a lot of places. And so let's just turn that into a cliffhanger. <laughs> we'll just we'll just leave it there. You could go research Jack if you want. I think I think maybe someday we we can do an episode on him because he's he's a fascinating person, regardless of whether or not people liked him much in the industry. So yeah. Real quick before we finish up, I want to thank someone specific. I want to thank Forgotten VCR on Twitch for this particular episode. And the reason is, is that if you guys don't know him, he basically takes a bunch of crazy movies and edits them together into these. He calls them fever dreams that are a ton of fun to watch. And um, the first interaction I ever had with the Atari Jaguar was watching clips from the cave. And I was like, what the actual fuck am I watching right now? And I had to know, right? And so I had been working on another episode and I was like, oh man, like I gotta, I gotta dig into the Atari Jaguar and see what happened here. Cause this is like, if this is the end of Jaguar, like if Jaguar is going out with this really fucking strange infomercial or rather Atari is, I gotta know what led up to this. So, um, I just want to thank him for introducing me to that. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yes. Thank you. Thank you also to Dark Core for hosting our web space mm-hmm. and also to Quad Laser for the providing us with music that we can play and to all the people that listen to us and hang out with us and um, generally have a good time talking about video games. We appreciate you. Oh, and I have to say to all of you who give me feedback on the podcast, I really enjoy it. 
um, can, you know, can, constructive criticism or otherwise, it's really fun to hear your takes on it and, and, you know, the games you grew up with and things that you learned. And so I just, you know, most of this happens in my discord or on Twitch or different places, but like, if you ever want to hit us with some feedback or just tell us something cool or just say hi, you can always hit us up at our email, um, you know, codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us with a tweet on Twitter, codexrexpodcast. Um, we'd be happy to hear from you. We really enjoy it. So, yeah. And also, if you have suggestions for episodes, even though Tyler is committed to this 24-episode epos of um, 90s games now, I'm still, I, I do not do commitments like that. So I always think of the episodes one month ahead and then just write them down. So if you make right <laughs> suggestions, I can I can work on them and give you a weird German take on it. If you all knew how many half-finished scripts that we have sitting in Microsoft Word documents, you... Mm. <laughs> That's never going to be a Tamagotchi episode. Fuck Tamagotchi. I want your Tamagotchi <laughs> episode. I need to see yeah. it. Never. Bandai is such a weird company. I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, friends. Hey, stay safe out there. Be good to each other. And we'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. Bye.